This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Pastor Will Ford. Pastor Ford is the former director of Marketplace Major at Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, Texas. His ministry and his work have been featured on CBS, The 700 Club, Charisma, and many other media outlets. And he owns a very special family heirloom, which, though unrelated to his chosen passage, will be the subject of my first question. Pastor Ford, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be with you and, and uh, appreciate you uh, having me on today. Well, thank you. Now, uh, before we get to your chosen passage, really two passages which speak to the same idea, Joshua 4.20 and 1 Kings 31, I want to see the heirloom. Do you have the heirloom there? I do. I do. I have it, I have it right here. So, Well, why don't you show it and then talk about it? Because some people will be watching, but a lot of people will be listening on a podcast. So uh, let me show this for you guys. This, Mark, is, has been in my family, passed down for many, many generations, about eight generations. So it looks like a, it's, a, it's a kettle. It's a cast iron kettle pot, and it's been passed down for many generations in my family. It was used for cooking. It was used for washing clothes by the slaves in my family, on my father's side of the family. They were slaves in Lake Providence, Louisiana. But the reason why it was passed down is because secretly it was used for prayer. It used that pot to muffle their voices. I'll get to more of that in a second. But what it is is a memorial stone. And it's been passed down years. So the whole idea of memorial stones comes from Joshua 4. And, you know, the interesting thing is in Joshua 4, uh, it talks about memorial stones a couple of times in that one chapter. And so uh, I think about three times it mentions the memorial stones. Joshua 4, 4. He says, uh, cross again the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan and take up stones on your shoulder, one priest tribe of the, of the sons of Israel. Then he says, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? You should say to them, before the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the of the Lord, when the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And then he says it again at the end of the same chapter, Joshua 4, Verses uh, 19 through 25 says the exact same thing again. And so the whole idea of memorials, you know, Yahweh talks about that. He, he, he has these artifacts that provide meaning and establish culture for a people. And that's what he was doing with those stones. Because there was going to come a generation after them that hadn't seen a Red Sea part or Jordan River part. So they would have seen these stones piled up there. And, and it was to provoke that generation into the history of God's faithfulness with their forefathers. Well, and it says in Deuteronomy that the first thing we're to do when we enter the promised land is to write the Torah on 12 plaster stones. Right. Wow. That's, that's powerful. I didn't think of it like that. That's amazing. The, the first thing we do is to, is to it's, I think of it as basically, you know, the constitution or, you know, very often when you walk into someone's home, you'll see a biblical verse. Or when you walk into a church or a synagogue, you'll see a biblical verse basically telling the guest, like, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. And it says, on plaster stones, write the whole Torah as soon as you get in. So everyone coming in can see this is what you stand for. Wow. And then you have the, the Ebenezer stone, too. You know, what, 
the stone uh, that the prophet, uh, I think it was Samuel, set up there after they won a huge battle. And he has this stone and he named it Ebenezer, which means thus far the Lord has helped us. And so that's what these memorial stones are, are to be for our families, are these remembrances of the history of God's faithfulness to our forefathers, not just so we can recollect on the past and just stay there, so they can be a starting block to move forward. But, you know, that's powerful. I, I hadn't thought about how the, the Ten Commandments were there on stone tablets. Again, the memorial stones, once again. So, so tell us about the kettle. So this was a kettle used by your slave ancestors. Used by my slave ancestors. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. Secretly, they used it for prayer because they were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat them for any reason. Praying was one of them. So back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But the peculiar institution that slavery was, they would pervert the gospel, they would twist the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Of course, when they, in the Christian faith, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, it's a gift of God so that no one should boast, but it's easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was against the law for slaves to even be taught how to read and write. And uh, if you go through, I think, one of those museums for the Bibles uh, that, that is there in Washington, D.C., you can see where the book of Exodus, which we all share together, you know, in our Judeo-Christian uh, faith, the book of Exodus was actually taken out of some of the early Bibles that was used on those slave plantations to make sure that no one ever read the, the slaves. Wow. Is that right? The, the Bibles on the slave plantations had Exodus removed from them because Exodus is a great story of liberation and, and the slave masters didn't want the slaves meditating on Exodus. Right. Or Esther. The book of Esther was also also ripped out. And so they didn't want them to get kind of hope for freedom. And the irony is that the, while they wanted them to, to, to be Christians, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. But if they got hopeful, they'd run away. So they'd literally beaten on this plantation if they were called Give an example how cruel slavery was during this time period. We had a story passed down in our family about a great uncle of ours named Uncle Willie who went fishing without asking. And when he came back from his fishing trip, they decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree and literally beat him to death uh, simply for going fishing without asking. So that's how cruel slavery was in that plantation. And if they were caught praying, they would be beaten as well. But the folks who owned this cast iron kettle pot in my family they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would go into a barn late at night to make sure the prayer meeting wouldn't sing. But to make sure it wouldn't hurt, they used that cast iron pot. They used it as an acoustic means to keep their prayer meeting secret. So what they would do is they would take the pot and invert it. They would turn it upside down on the cabin floor. They would then prop it up with rocks about three or four so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening and the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So uh, one day freedom comes, there's this young teenage girl who decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. Why? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps that pot and that story in our family, and she passed it on to Harriet Lockett, passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett had a son uh, named uh, Lawrence Lockett, but they changed his name to William Lawrence Ford. And then he passed it on to his son, William Ford Jr. Why did his name get changed? 
his name got changed because uh, back during that time period, he was raised by his uh, grandparents. His mother passed away. And so they didn't want him to have a slave last name. So they changed his last name. Why was Lockett a slave last name? It was a slave last name because they were owned by a family of Lockett's. Oh, and the slaves took the, took the names of, okay. Of people who owned them. And so they didn't want him to have a slave last name. So they gave him the last name of one family friend and the first name of another family friend. So he became William Lawrence Ford. What year would that have been? 1906. Okay. He's born in 1906? That's when my granddad is born, yeah. So then uh, his son, William Ford Jr. was born, and then he passed the pot on to me, William Ford III. Now, what's the story, which I've read about, but let's tell everyone, uh, with the other lockets, which now makes sense. Now it makes sense because I was wondering, now, now I get it. So the interesting thing, you know, time goes on, and I, I've been traveling around the country using this as an object lesson for, for prayer. You know, David, in, uh, I think it's in uh, Psalm 141, I believe, he says, Lord, let them of my hands be like the evening sacrifice and let my prayer be like incense before your throne. And so uh, in Christian faith in Revelation uh, 5, verse 8, it says that our prayers are collected in bowls in heaven as incense. And then at some point, according to Revelation 8, it says that those prayers are connected with other prayers and these bowls of intercession, if you will, are thrown down to earth to release answers to prayer. That's, that's the concept of prayer, you know, from our early Hebrew understanding with our Jewish brothers. It's always been that prayer is like incense before God's throne. How is the prayers of this godly remnant of people that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening? You know, had it not been for those amazing revivals during that time period, you know, slavery probably wouldn't have entered our nation. And there was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. But because of the transformation that happened in people's hearts in the nation, that law got broken in the hearts of people so radically, people in the North were willing to fight for people in the South that did not look like them. Then also, too, if you think about uh, with Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, there was such an amazing golden age of a connection between uh, Jewish brothers and, the, and Black Christians the faith during the civil rights movement and saw amazing breakthroughs during that time period as well. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it was a dream about Dr. King that actually got used to turn my heart even more. I had a dream uh, in this dream. Uh, Dr. King was coming out of his house and he had this humongous white duffel bag with black handles on it. And uh, I had to pick up Dr. King to, to take him to this meeting we were going to in my dream. And so when I saw Dr. King with a white bag with the black candles, I, I saw all this dark garbage. And then he uh, throws the bag down violently and he comes again to this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought, man, that bag can make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, uh, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial division in our nation. So I woke up from this dream just broken. I, I knew what God was finally putting his finger on. I realized the white bag represented my white baggage and the black handles represented how I've been, as a black man, carrying my white baggage for too long. And I knew God was saying, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. So I, I know what that feels like. I know what God was talking about because I know it's like at 13 years old to have, you know, me and my friends were all 12, 13 years old. They had a carload full of white guys drive up on us call us the N-word, say they're going to shoot and kill us. Uh, they probably were just joyriding, but they chased us for two hours and we were terrified. I know what it's like 
uh, 19 years old to be falsely accused of shoplifting. And when the police officer couldn't find anything on me, he said ugly things to me to try to provoke me into a fight so he have a reason for taking me in. I know what it's like in my 30s to get my first nice house in the suburbs, but the same police officer every week for the first three months would pull me over just for driving wild black. Those kind of things feel like. But here's the thing. For every white person and every police officer in that region, I put those three stories on everybody so that before I, I could ever have one conversation with them, those three bad narratives on everybody. In other words, I prejudged everybody. That's what I believe the enemy of our souls is trying to get us to do right now. He's also known as the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser is a Greek word, which comes from the Greek word kategoros. That's where we get the word category. So I believe right now what the enemy is trying to do is He's getting us, trying to get us to categorize or stereotype each other so that before we could ever have one conversation with each other, you know, we'll, we'll put some bad narrative or some bad stereotype on other people, some bad stigma, and feel like uh, God is saying to us, you know, get rid of, he was saying to me especially, get rid of my bitterness, get rid of my resentment, get rid of my unforgiveness, get rid of my ba- white baggage to be a part of a new vehicle that can bring, bring revival and justice for everybody. And I feel like that's what God is saying to all of us right now is this, what color is your baggage? <laughs> and he's saying, get rid of it because we need each other right now more than ever before. So after I had that dream, a friend asked me to share it at the Lincoln Memorial. It was MLK Celebration Day. What year was this? Uh, January 17, 2005. Well, there was a white guy who had a dream as well. <laughs> he comes to that event and uh, he was led there by a dream because he had a dream about the person over the event he did. He didn't know that person existed, found out this person was real. So he thought, okay, maybe this means something. So he shows up to the event and he and I became friends. We became really good friends. We've been friends for about 16 years. Well, fast forward, that white friend of mine, Matt Lockett is his name. He found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. And uh, here's a picture of that house. This is the house where General Lee fought his last battle. And uh, there you see the memorial stone, talking about memorial stones, there in front of the house, Sailor's Creek, here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. And uh, Mark, if you were to go up to the house, it's, it's like still riddled with uh, bullets from the, from the Civil War. The, the people who kept it had preserved it very well. As the story is told, the Northern Army was in the back of the house. The Southern Army was in the front. The only thing that stood between them was this house called Lockett's Farmhouse. And so he finds out about that and he takes his family there to go to go visit the place. They show him the holes of the place and then they show him his family lineage. And they said, how much do you know about your family? He said, well, not much. He said, well, uh, some of y'all, y'all all came in here through Virginia and you were very good friends with King George. And you had lots and lots of land, thousands of acres. And you also have huge families and you own lots and lots of slaves. He said, but some of y'all left from here and went to. Kentucky. Matt knew that part because he was from Kentucky. But then he said this, some of y'all left from here and you went on to Louisiana and throughout the deep south. And then he said that sometimes that y'all traveled across the country, you changed the, the spelling of your last name. You dropped one of the T's off a of locket. So when Matt heard that, he, he flew from, from D.C. to Dallas. And honestly, we just had a, we had a conversation. We had a really big talk because, uh, like I said, my last no family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. I don't know if I told you about him, but I had a genealogist look at my research back in 2003 and uh, said that my oldest known family member was believed to be a man named Isaac Lockett. He shows up at the 1870 census. He's a former slave. 
he was living in Louisiana, but in that document, this 90-year-old man said that he was originally from Virginia. And so, you know, slaves always took on the last names of the people who owned them. And the only lockers in Virginia around that time period was Matt's family. So that led to us doing about another year and a half of more research. And here's what we learned through the empirical evidence that we've been given to us. We learned that it was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned our family where that kettle pot came. I mean, think about it. Here's, here's, here's my family there in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who originally owned them, slavery comes to end in their front yard. But then, because God loves to heal history, he takes two people from the same family lines, Matt Lockett and I, and he weaves our family lines together so we can war against injustice in our day. And it's, it's just pretty fascinating stuff. Wow. Wow. So how do you um, associate your story and Matt's story and the kettle with Joshua 4, 20 to 24 and 1 Kings 18, 31 to 32? When I think about, I've just been thinking about God being the collector. He loves to collect. And, you know, you see like Jay Leno and, and, and other folks like car collectors and uh, uh, you see these shows where they talk about the, the motorcycles they have and how much they're worth or the expensive cars. And I've been thinking about what are the things that God collects? He collects memories. When he sees those 12 memorial stones, he didn't think about them being just a pile of rocks. What he saw was the great, great grandsons of his covenant friend, Abraham, who left everything to follow him. And so, you know, if we're made in God's image and likeness, think about it. You know, if I would give you my scrapbook from, from high school, you probably start laughing at some of those polyester suits, right? <laughs> you, you probably start laughing at some of those jerry curls. God, please don't let the jerry curl come back. <laughs> you know, but uh, if I were to get that same scrapbook back, I might start crying because I remember the battles I fought with this person and things overcame with that person. And, uh, you know, when there's fires, you know, like the fires in Redding, uh, California, people weren't concerned so much about their houses, even their cars. They were concerned more about their scrapbooks. So that's why Facebook is worth so much because it's the place where we house our memories. Instagram, we house our memories there. And so if we're made in God's image and likeness, think of how much he is, how he's moved like that. So when he sees those 12 memorial stones, he's thinking about the great, great grandson of, of his covenant friend Abraham and everything he promised him. And you know what? Elijah knew that. So Elijah, that's what in Joshua 4, you see the 12 memorial stones. But then you see those same memorial stones, they pop up again at a very peculiar place. Is First Kings chapter 18. And you're right. In Joshua 4, it's used as basically education. And Joshua set up the 12 stones and he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. So you're exactly right. The, the purpose of these stones is to remind, to educate and to be the educator itself. Yeah, and to be the educator himself. But then also those memories are something that moves Yahweh. So look at 1 Kings 30. It says, then Elijah, then he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. He says, then Elijah said to all the people, talking about the people of Israel, come near to me. It's interesting. Those four words were the same four words that, that Joseph used to save a whole nation when he told his, his 11 brothers, come near to me. When he's revealing himself to, the, to his brothers as to who he really is, right? So, yeah, so now Elijah is about to reveal God to all the people. So, so all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. How did he do it? Then Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench around the altar large enough to hold 
two measures of seed. So in other words, he used the memories to be the building block for prayer, for intercession, and not just to remind the people of God, how God brought them through, but to remind God of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love your use of the word and the term and the idea of memory, because in, uh, in Judaism, in, in Hebrew, there is not even a Hebrew word for history. I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, modern Israelis use the term historia, which is obviously just an invented term when Ben Yehuda modernized Hebrew in the early 20th century. But there's no Hebrew word for history because there's no Jewish concept of history because history is the chronicle of what happened to other people. Memory is what happened to you. So we say we were slaves in Egypt, not they, we. So there's no history. It's memory. It's remember when we were slaves in Egypt. That's the whole point of the Pesach holiday to remember how we were slaves in Egypt and what it means for us today. So so when you talk about how this educates all of us about the importance of memory, that's, that's exactly what I think the biblical author intended. Wow, that's, that's so powerful. The other thing that's interesting, it's talk about all these memorial stones. So Dr. King does that amazing speech at the Lincoln Memorial, the I Have a Dream speech. And uh, in it, he says, I have, I, have a, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners sit together at the table of brotherhood. Here's what happens, uh, even, even with our story. Uh, so, yeah, Matt found out in his family that he had slave owners. But he also found out that he had family members who were revivalists and abolitionists against slavery as well. So he had these abolitionists in his family as well. And it's like all of our families. We have these things called generational curses and generational blessings. represent these dominating themes or storylines about a family regarding, you know, a, a legacy in God. And uh, they have these dominating themes. And so I, I think what, what God is saying to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? I'll share well, this last story. So there was a, a member of Matt's family who actually walked in on two slaves trying to learn how to read and write. And, you know, they thought there was going to be some bad consequences for that. But she said, you know what? What you're doing is good and right. I'm going to take over your tutor. And so she hired a tutor. And she taught that mother how to teach her five-year-old boy how to read. So we know that story because that five-year-old boy grew up to be Robert Russell Moton. Robert Russell Moton wrote this in his autobiography. He became a very important man in, in American history. He actually became the second president of Tuskegee Institute. Of, of what institute? Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University. Oh, okay. And uh, he became an education advisor to four presidents. And... When the Lincoln Memorial was built and dedicated, Robert Moton is the person who did the dedication speech. And that's his picture right there. That's him doing the dedication speech. And so he was taught how to read and write by Matt's family member, Lucy Lockett. It just so happens that 41 years later, Dr. King would come to those same steps and he would give the I Have a Dream speech. And then 41 years later, my friend Matt Lockett and I would meet at those same steps at a prayer meeting. And this happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the place where Dr. King said, as I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And the dream literally came true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally come true. I believe it's because it's God's dream for us all and working together in unity. You know, the other dream that Dr. King had that most people don't know about is that he wanted to bring 5,000 pastors and leaders from America to Israel. And one of his last trips to Israel, that's what he wanted to do. And uh, he wanted there to be this 
cohesive work and uh, continue on the great unity that was there with the Jewish community and the Christian African-American community. And that's something I want to see happen too. And that's what I want to foster. A lot of people don't know that uh, in many of the historically black colleges and universities, it was Jewish rabbis and Jewish scholars who were some of the first teachers in many of those schools. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, in Detroit and other areas where African-Americans were held back because of redlining and other discriminatory laws uh, there in the underwriting from the Housing Commission, it was Jewish people who would buy houses for African-Americans and African-Americans come in behind them and buy that house. And so there's been this amazing, great relationship before things got turned ugly through the 80s and Crown Heights and other things. So I believe God wants to heal that, heal that breach right now. And uh, that's why I appreciate what you're doing, Rabbi, so, so much. Well, thank you. I mean, how did you develop such, because you're so well known for this generally, how did you develop such really love of the Jewish religion, the Jewish people, the Jewish state, basically all things Jewish? It started for me with just uh, reading the Bible from cover to cover. And uh, when, I, when I got to, uh, to Paul, when we talked about in Romans 11, about uh, how uh, the Gentiles are grafted in, uh, in, into the Jewish faith. So I thought, you know, I need to know more, know more about this amazing Jewish faith. And I was blown away. Honestly, the more I understood Judaism, the more I understood the Old Testament, he, he revealed to me the God of the, the New Testament in such a powerful, beautiful way. And uh, I just began to see, even through history, that the relationship between uh, the civil rights movement and folks like Abraham Heschel, who said that as he walked across the Norman Pettus Bridge with Dr. King, he said, as I walked across that bridge, I felt like my legs were praying. I saw the, uh, just the amazing relationship between the, those two. And so anyway, those are the things that really spurred me on to, uh, to go deeper, not just to understand the history, but to connect with the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Thank you. I mean, your, your friendship is so uh, deeply appreciated. Now, how do you think we can basically take the lessons of the two biblical passages which you chose, which both refer to how we can take stones, physical objects, and because, you know, one of the challenges of faith is that faith, both the Jewish and the Christian faith, is abstract. We're, we are commanded to believe in a God who's invisible. He's everywhere, but he's invisible. So that's one of the challenges of faith. And, and as, as you said, with the Ten Commandments, with the stones upon entering the land of Deuteronomy, with the stones that you pointed out in uh, Kings and Joshua, we're concretizing faith. So how can we best concretize faith today to use the physical world that we live in to make the invisible as real as it really is. Exactly. I believe it's that whole thing of honor as it is in heaven. And I believe that uh, we're to work toward a common good and co find a place of common ground and find ways we can work together. I think that's really key. I think the shared faith that we have, even with these memorial stones, you know, God has not forgotten about the promise that he made to Abraham. And he had forgotten about the prayers of all the people who, who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God sees those, when he sees that kettle pot, he's not just seeing a, a cast iron cooking pot that's 200 years old. What he sees are my great forefathers, you know, Isaac Locke and others who are praying for my freedom. And he looks at me and he remembers that, those prayers. Same thing for everyone uh, who, who's Jewish as well with the menorah and everything else. What I'm saying is that we have these artifacts that show our shared history and we're more united in ways than, than we can actually realize. And so those are some of the ways I think that we're to bring these things together. Another thing that's, that's beautiful too, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I've been told by my Orthodox rabbi friends who, who study uh, Old Testament no more than I, they said that the word of coincidence is not in the Hebrew language. I'm sure that's right. Very interesting. I'm sure that's right. It's certainly not a Jewish idea, so that would make a lot of sense. Very interesting. So there's no, no coincidences. And, and so the God providentially is watching over all these things. And you know, providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs just the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. I just don't even think an accident, uh, Mark, you and I met, I don't think it's an accident how God is connecting people together. And uh, in the midst of all the division that's going on in the world right now, I don't think it's an accident how uh, God brought myself and my friend Matt Locker together. And I think we're just a uh, small snapshot, a microcosm of what God is doing to heal a lot of the division that's going on right now. I, actually, uh, before there was ever hashtag George Floyd, a hashtag Ahmaud Arbery, or hashtag uh, Brianna Taylor, I was actually dealing with hashtag anti-Semitism and uh, spending time with Messianic rabbis and, and Orthodox rabbis, trying to heal the breach that's come between the African-American community. There was a, a group of uh, people from a cult called the Hebrew Israelites that actually came after a, a Jewish rabbi in his home during the Feast of Lights and took a machete and hacked him. And I thought that was, that was horrible. Three weeks later, he, he literally died. Then there was a Jewish kosher deli there in New Jersey where two people in an influence of the same cult, the Hebrew Israelites, go in and they shoot six people, four people have died in a Jewish kosher deli. So I've been meeting with uh, leaders in, in both communities, in those both areas, trying to heal this breach because I think we still have some unfinished business. I think we still have these memorial stones, the living memorial stones like Dr. King and, uh, and Rabbi Hesher and others. And I think God wants to reconnect to their unfinished business to keep moving the chain forward, healing. And we both have this shared history of coming out of slavery. We both have this shared history, this shared narrative uh, in the natural but spiritually, we're more connected than we realize. And so that's what that's part of my mission right now is to uh, heal that breach. And I want to I want to take 5000 uh, African-American leaders to Israel so they can understand the Christian African-American leaders to their place so they can know their roots. So they'll know what it means to be grafted in so they can see, can touch the place that's going to be home for all of us forever. And so that's that's one of my missions right now. It's so beautiful. And what a what a profound insight into the non-existence of coincidence. I mean, there's no way it's a coincidence that you met Matt the way you did, that Dr. King said what he said 35 years before, then you meet Wilmore, then you meet Matt, and now here you are today with the such an extraordinarily precious heirloom in your, there's no way that's a coincidence. Obviously, if anyone looked at it from the outside without a, a kind of an ideologically secular mindset, you would say, well, this is a story. Right. This is the story. It started in the 1800s and it's ongoing. We'll see where it concludes to the extent anything concludes. But it's a story, it's not a series of random happenings. It's a story. It's, there's a coherence to it. There's a coherence to it. And uh, we have enough people around us who, you know, un understand the events and how we were, how we were connected. So, yes, it's not a, a crazy fabricated thing. But I don't know, just the beauty of it is just you just see God's hand in history in the book of uh, Esther. So we call it Esther. Uh, what do y'all call the book of Esther? Esther. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, in Esther, the name uh, Yahweh is not, not mentioned, but you see his hand operating throughout the whole time. And I think that's, you know, that's so fascinating. That's where we are right now. The providential hand of God is moving behind the scenes, way more than real life, answering prayers. You know, uh, she goes in that fast and 
and the whole nation gets saved. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why Hitler didn't want the book of Esther to be read by the Jews in the same way the slave masters during that time period uh, didn't want slaves to, to read the book of Esther or, or the book of Esther. Well, thank you for such a fascinating and moving conversation deriving from these two biblical passages, but leading us in such, uh, such extraordinary directions. Now, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Melrue's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story. He said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Will, as you've been on your journey with Matt Lockett, and even before, but particularly in, in your journey with Matt Lockett and with the kettle that you showed us and the biblical verses that really helped you understand it, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? One is that God loves us more than we can fathom. And the other thing is I learned that uh, he's way more involved in our lives than we realize. So those two kind of go together. And the last one is this, no one is a mistake. You know, Psalm 139, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And David said this, he said, I know that full well, and I wish that we would know that full well. I wish we would know full well how we weren't just the accident, random accident of somebody in the backseat of the car, which we could realize that no one is an accident, no matter what state they're born, or what class or division, whatever. God willed us into existence, according to Psalm 139, fearfully. Wonderful, made like it was like Stradivarius making a violin. He's he was very meticulous about making those violins. No, 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 no. The fret has to be like this. No, 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 no. Those 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 epos have to be a certain way. No, this curve right here has to be. He was very meticulous about. It. He, he was fearful about how you make every single one of them. That's why they sound so amazing. They sound so distinct. I think that's how God made all of us. No one has the same fingerprint. You know, your eyes are we're all eyes are different. Every in other words, he fearfully and wonderfully made us because he loves us. And I just wish that humanity knew that for Beautiful. Well, Will, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation, these profound insights, and for sharing your, your family's story in the context of the Bible. And thank you for your friendship uh, personally and, and to the Jewish people. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. It's an honor to be with you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.